one of the great boons for me of my meditation practice was learning firsthand that that simply wasn't true, that <laughs> I could not control my thoughts, but I could change my relationship to the thoughts. I could change the entire kind of environment within which the thoughts were coming and going. As one of my teachers, this Tibetan teacher, Sonny Rinpoche, said, it's not the thoughts that are the problem, it's the glue. Mm-hmm. You know, we have a certain thought or set of feelings, we take it to heart, we build a future around it. We decide we're the only ones who have ever felt this. <laughs> ever in the history of humanity, right? Hello, hello, and welcome to the Meta Hour podcast with Sharon Salzberg. I'm Lily Cushman, and I produce this wonderful podcast. And today we're starting a brand new series for episode 210 in honor of Mental Health Awareness Month, which is the month of May in the United States. And that is a mental health series that we're doing here on the Meta Hour. And the ways that Buddhist wisdom and spiritual practice can support mental health And this is a long, multi-part series we're doing, and that will be a variety of conversations. Sharon speaking with different therapists, teachers, mental health advocates, really from a lot of different angles. And so it's going to be a really rich conversation. And a big part of the motivation for this series is to help you apply a lot of the tools that you already have been exploring in your practice, in your studies, and applying it to what can be a very stigmatized part of our lives. So we're looking forward to the series, which will be coming out every other week for the coming months. And as part of this series, we're also accepting topic suggestions, or if you have specific questions, we've already received some great ones like how to find a therapist who's also trained in mindfulness, things like that. We'd love to hear from you and just hear what you'd like to hear this series get into. So for that, you can reach out to us by email, admin at SharonSalzberg.com. That's A-D-M-I-N at SharonSalzberg.com. We're also compiling a resource list as part of this podcast series. So you can check out the show notes for this recording. And there's links to a lot of great different resources there. So for our inaugural episode of the mental health series, Sharon is sitting down with the wonderful Reggie Hubbard today and a pretty wide ranging conversation, a very personal conversation. For those who don't know Reggie, he's a certified yoga and meditation teacher. He's the founder of Active Peace Yoga. He offers asana and meditation practices to a whole range of people, including members of Congress, major labor unions, progressive organizations, really folks from all walks of life. Outside of his teaching, he's held numerous strategic roles, logistical roles, 
across a pretty wide variety of fields, global marketing, digital organizing, community organizing, government relations, international education. Uh, I don't want to forget to mention presidential campaigns. So he's got a really beautiful mix of both being a political activist, a strategist, an organizer, and a really deep meditation and yoga teacher. He offers a lot of insight as a black man growing up in the Baltimore area and just what we can learn from marginalized communities who so often have not had a lot of support for mental health care or education around mental health. And also one of Reggie's really gorgeous offerings is he does a lot of sound meditation. So the episode closes with one and you're in for quite a treat. So before we get to the episode, a couple of announcements. Sharon has a few events coming up in May, also in June. The first one is coming right up and that's May 13th. She is joining the Holistic Life Foundation at the Garrison Institute. And that's a day-long virtual program exploring love as the most powerful force. And there are scholarships available. Following that is May 22nd, the Global Compassion Coalition. Sharon's doing a virtual talk. She's back at Garrison in June with Sylvia Borstein on June 10th. And that's a day-long virtual program. And then June 16th is a book event, a real-life book talk via East West Bookstore on June 16th. So for all those, you can visit SharonSalzberg.com. And one other announcement, we've decided to continue our real-life series sharing with you some different interviews that Sharon has done surrounding the topics of her new book. So I know last week I said it was the last one, but (laughs) we've decided to carry on and we're going to stay at weekly episodes in order to do that. So we'll be alternating a real life episode with a mental health episode every week moving forward for the next few months. So we're excited about all that's coming. And so let's get to today's conversation. Sharon Salzberg and Reggie Hubbard. I'm here today with the wonderful Reggie Hubbard. I'm looking forward to hearing your perspective on mental health and some of the tools you offer in your work and community to support folks. This is a big and important topic, and I thought a good place to start is in some historical context, because so much of the way that mental illness or mental health are approached in our culture today emerged from a deeply stigmatized medical history. It has long been a source of immense social shame. Having a mentally ill family member was considered a blemish on the family's honor. Hundreds of years ago, mental illness was thought to be possessed by evil spirits, to be countered with exorcisms, prayer, or isolation. There's a long history of pretty barbaric treatments for quite a vulnerable population. While there have been incredible strides in the medical approach to mental health, I think there are still traces of that history in some of the fear and stigma 
surrounding mental health today. Reggie and I have been coming together this year for the Wellbeing Project for their Sitting at the Feet of Elders series. We have touched on mental health a little bit there, but I'm looking forward to getting more into that, Reggie, with you today. Hi, Reggie. Hey, how are you? I'm good. I'm good. And you? I'm blessed, excited. Um, it, it sounds kind of nerdy, but it's true. Like one of the things I enjoy is smashing stigma. Yeah. And one, it began as a youth, as a smart black kid, because black boys can't be smart. Yeah, we can be brilliant when you get out of our way, right? And so, like, yeah. smashing stigma is uh, what I really delight in. And first, it began in my life with race, but now my teaching practice, it's become with grief and mental health and mm-hmm. well-being, because people just, like you said, treat it with such. I didn't even think about it in the context of the barbaric history, but I, I really appreciate that frame. So maybe the place to begin is to hear a bit about your healing and mental health journey. And your work focuses primarily on two elements, as far as I can tell, activism and teaching. Mm -hmm. And I'm curious to learn how you approach mental health in those contexts. Well, you know, I've talked a little bit about this, but for the broader benefit of other people, like the political arena is a lot of great people with uh, good hearts but bad habits and the habits pretty much lend themselves to self-destruction physically and mentally. So my approach to mental health has been one, a wandering journey from wanton destruction to reverence over the course of the past, I would say 25 years or so in my adulthood. So I began with, you know, 18 hour days and like a continuing addiction to workaholism for the sake of quote unquote, doing good. And now my approach is it is the exact opposite where my meetings are shorter, my appointments are less. And um, I tell people all the time, like when I talk, like these are well-reasoned thoughts rooted in rest as opposed to like rooted in fumes um, (laughs) after being awake for 18 hours a day for 20 days, you know, so you can't have great strategy from an exhausted mind. And so like, it's one of the things that I teach in my activist work to political folks, but it's pretty much the calling card of my journey, like going from that self-destruction, who needs sleep, all this other stuff, to sleep is great. And here are tools and tips to like wean yourself from the self-destructive nature of, of some of these common practices. Well, in terms of activists, don't you find that there's a certain level of guilt that taking care of yourself in some way is seen as too self-referential or, you know, not opening to the tremendous suffering, you know, that <laughs> right. genuinely exists. Right. Yeah. I think it's a little bit, it's definitely a little bit of that. And it's, it's also just most, it's most people feel guilty for taking care of themselves in the context of the, the broader work, but there's also something more sinister at play in that people believe that taking care of yourself is a waste of time. Mm-hmm. Right. That um, drinking water like like I remember working on campaigns and people would get mad at themselves. I don't drink water because I have to go to the bathroom, you know, like all these sorts of things. Mm-hmm. And um, it saddens me, which is part of the reason that I'm so yoga forward and meditation forward in my activist work, because I'm like, y'all, look, this thing called the body and the mind are the vehicles through which we do our work. And like if we don't hold them with reverence and sanctity, what do you think the quality of our work's going to be? And so being able to have those conversations has been a dream of mine. But yeah, I, I learned it the hard way. Like you said, I didn't think I had the time to take care of myself, but also there's so much work to do. If I take any time off, it's a detriment to the work, which could be nothing further from the truth. 
Mm-hmm. Well, there are a lot of misconceptions about mental health, and I'd like to unpack a few of them with you. Mm-hmm. The first is this idea that mental illness is rare and that it's not normal to struggle in any way. In 2020, 21% of U.S. adults, that's 52.9 million, mm. experienced a mental health condition. That's one in five people. Also interesting, the rates are highest for 18 to 25-year-olds and BIPOC people. Mm-hmm. You know, one of the things that uh, lightened my heart from the episode of Sitting at the Feet of Elders that we did with uh, Chris mm-hmm. is that we normalized uh, through our words that it's okay to be unwell. Yeah. Right. So especially in the context of what we just went through as a global culture, right? So a germ that we couldn't see or a virus that we couldn't see um, that some people still think is fake created untold anxiety and death and destruction. And for us to be a little exhausted and bewildered after that is common. Yeah. Right. And, you know, one of the things I try um, in some of the broader teaching that I do is to be like, if you feel a little mentally exhausted, you should (laughs) and you're not alone. And the candor with which I offer that, but also the I always try and lace it with compassion. You have every right to be exhausted. We're going through something that's unprecedented. You know, one of the jokes that's out there now is may we have precedent at times again, because, <laughs> <laughs> you know, we've had so much of precedent at times in the past half decade or so. Like maybe live the de- see the day for precedent at times. But in the nature of the unprecedented times that we've had, I would even say it's more than one in five, but even 20 percent you know, like people hit 20% in Major League Baseball and have a job. Yeah. That's a lot. Yeah. Well, even as I read that, I thought 2020. Oh, wow. That was the beginning. Before, for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, before times. <laughs> right. Exactly. You know, and there's something about um, kind of the grinding nature of an enduring stress. Mm-hmm. That's, you know, when I think about 2020. Right. And I think about those times when there also was kind of a feeling of togetherness for some people mm-hmm. and you know people were you know i have one friend who was like meeting his elderly neighbor every night in the hallway of their building sitting way far apart from one another but chatting right you know and those relatively small things that were so impactful like for the elderly neighbor mm-hmm. were happening a lot and then it just went on and on, you know, and right. people often, I think, are exhausted. And because it was persistent, it's one of the things that it's, it's as if the conscious mind got used to it and it faded to the subconscious mind. Mm-hmm. And it just went on and on and on for years. And to some extent, I'm sure many of us still have that feeling of like, what is going on or when will this end or The other part of it, there are many people who are deluding themselves into thinking that times that are long gone are going to come back. And that's a level of grief that our society doesn't know how to structure. Mm -hmm. Um, It's not there is no infrastructure to deal with. But also, this is where I'm so one of the blessings of the pandemic for me is that I finished uh, the MMTCP training um, with Jack Katara and to study deep levels of mindfulness and compassion in the middle of a pandemic mm-hmm. was like not a masterclass per se, but it just gave me a window into the necessity of this ancient wisdom in modern times. And so one of the things that I think that many of us should consider is just look around you and give everyone a, like touch your heart and say, 
peace be upon you because I don't know your struggle right now. I don't know what you've been through. I don't know how the past several years have impacted you. Um, I had a class that I taught at Kripalu over the winter of uh, 2023, and it was called the Winter Blues Grief Sangha. And one of my students was like, I had two iPhone funerals, mm. right? So she lost uh, two of her elders in her family and the only way mm. they could say goodbye was through the phone. Yeah, Like that doesn't go away. Um, and not talking about that exacerbates some of the conditions they were talking about. Yeah, I want to just take a moment as a side note and talk about caregivers mm-hmm. because you're reminding me of a conversation I had with someone in some webinar who was saying, you know, can you imagine all those people whose beloved person died like in a nursing home or hospital and they could not go in. Mm-mm. They had to say goodbye via iPad. And I said, I just want to point out there was someone holding that iPad. Someone was holding the iPad, right. And the exhaustion and level of wear and tear and that person who every day, Again and again and again, right? Yeah. Yeah, thank you for that remembrance. And it's also, I mean- Yes, it is a lot. That's the, when you bring the power of conscious awareness to that situation, yes, the person who was receiving that iPad, but yes, someone was holding the phone or the iPad and they had to put down that phone, deal with that loss and then prepare for another one. Yeah. Yeah, so- we haven't unpacked that level of granularity, what we've been through as a society. So to your point, I would be interested. It's got to be over 21% right now. Yeah. It also brings us to another misconception that mental illness is a sign of weakness or lack of willpower. Mm-hmm. It also feels to me like part of the conversation around masculinity and right. and some misconceptions about where strength and power can be found and the stoicism often taught not only to men, but certainly to men. Yeah, so for, I I was raised in a really strong male dominant. Not well, it was equal in the house, but like there was a strong line of men in my family line. So grandfather, like uh, my dad, and, and two uncles, and there were like, seven male cousins. So we come from a long line. And one of the things they always taught us was be a man. And you know, I remember when I got older. I think Sharon, I think you know this, but I was a philosophy major. And in my teenage years, I'm like, yeah, but what does that mean? <laughs> Mm-hmm. <laughs> right, be a man. Ah, yeah, help me with that. Like, help me understand exactly what that means. Does that mean be stoic and have like you know? So I would be questioning that, which my family was like, "This kid has lost his mind." I was like, "No, I'm trying to find it." You know, so you know, one of the things I do in my work is I create conditions for BIPOC men to heal because it's not just societally ingrained; it's just a, a posture that we've adopted that a no one cares about what we're, what we're going through. And I have to do this all by myself. And it's just exacerbated like day after day after day. And then it's multiplied by the fact that millions of people think the same thing. And so it creates a condition of, it's in a culturalization of something that's just not true. And stoicism yields higher blood pressure, Mm -hmm. right? It, it, It yields all of these other things that we don't think about in the terms of a health context, but it's equally as disturbing in the way that, you know, some people call it toxic masculinity, I'm trying to create conditions for just a renewed understanding of that and that can we just allow ourselves to be who we are mm-hmm. without all the trappings. Like if you are, if you're tired, go to sleep and talk about it. If, if you're upset and angry, it is okay to feel those things rather than pretend like they're not there. So to your point and the point of the prompt is that I think that the way that society is structured creates conditions for people to have like that cognitive dissonance. And that confusion and that cultural conditioning, which 
you know, I'm trying to do through my example, but also through my teaching work and speaking stuff is model the antithesis of that. Like, because if I'm upset, you'll hear about it. If I'm happy, you'll hear about it. If I'm sad, you'll hear about it. And I try and do that through a compassionate frame to be like, you can be a fully functioning man or whatever and be upset and cry and be so sad that you don't want to leave the house. Mm-hmm. Right. So creating conditions to normalize that, which I enjoy. And I think it's taking root, but we got a lot more work to do. I think we do too. <laughs> Maybe we could, you could talk a little bit about the particular challenges of being a black man. Mm-hmm. So I'll share from my lived experience that I grew up in the suburbs of Baltimore, Maryland. And when I was a, as a young child, black kids wouldn't talk to me because I was smart and white kids wouldn't talk to me because I was black. Mm. Huh? <laughs> you know, like this is like from five, six, seven years old, right? And so like from early days, there was just this schism in the way that I had to move through the world. I was just like, so you're not going to talk to me because the color of my skin and you're not going to talk to me because I'm smart. Like, so I just had this burgeoning uh, sense of confusion in my head from a, from a child. And then, you know, what often happens is black men, we are recipients of unwarranted hatred or we'll do something and someone who does the exact same thing will get praise and will either get silence or antipathy. And so it just creates, for me, it created a whole bunch of anger, mm-hmm. right? And so that became the fuel that propelled me through the world for quite some time. So I would say from 16 to 35, I was just so pissed. And I was just like, my anger was the fuel that led me to succeed. Sharon, I gained 100 pounds in my 20s because of like that anger was so powerful it came at a negligible awareness of myself and my, my physical well-being, right? That anger was so profound that I used to have stress-induced eczema. My skin, my forearms would be white mm-hmm. because of I was literally, my fire was burning myself out. And what I didn't know, I didn't have the awareness because I was so focused on proving myself to a system that never would accept me or being in situations where I just wasn't appreciated for who I was for reasons like the color of my skin or people's insecurity about my race or size or those sorts of things. And that just created conditions for a breakdown, mm-hmm. right? And I reached uh, a point of the dark night of the soul in my mid thirties where I was just like, this isn't worth it. Yeah. <laughs> and luckily for me, I said, it's not worth it, not in a way of devaluing my life, but in terms of this is where the philosophy major came into play and was helpful is that my emotional response and the stimulus through which I move through the world is actually destroying me. So how can I take that energy from the response and then direct that energy, as Elder Thich Nhat Hanh would say, into the seeds that would blossom the fruit that I was looking for? And that ended up being wellness and meditation and yoga, philosophy, but then the physical practice. And so the same impetus that used to fuel my anger at around 38, I poured that into 
deeper study of the Vedas, deeper study of the Dhammapada, like all these different things and the physical practice. So same energy, different investment. And I'm just lucky that I was able to make that pivot. Mm-hmm. Well, I think there's also, you know, a prevalent misunderstanding about controlling our minds that can be hard to grapple with. It's like an idea that someday we can control our thoughts and emotions <laughs> directly. So we will no longer feel what annoying thing it is we're feeling right now. And, you know, if someone say experiencing a lot of anxiety, there is this misconception that with the right tool, we can destroy it. We can right. force that anxiety into submission and force it to go away. And one of the great boons for me of my meditation practice was learning firsthand that that simply wasn't true, that <laughs> I could not control my thoughts, but I could change my relationship to the thoughts. I could change the entire kind of environment within which the thoughts were coming and going. As one of my teachers, this Tibetan teacher, Sonny Rinpoche, said, it's not the thoughts that are the problem, it's the glue. Mm-hmm. You know, we have a certain thought or set of feelings, we take it to heart, we build a future around it. We decide we're the only ones who have ever felt this. <laughs> ever in the history of humanity, right? It's never going to change and all of that. But that idea, then we're embarrassed. You know, I remember being very embarrassed. I couldn't make it go away, you know. Mm-hmm. I've been meditating for like six days, you know, why is it still here? <laughs> now it's like 50 years, you know. Right. But everything is different. It's truly different by changing one's relationship to it. Yeah, that's been the best thing um, that's happened to me was the understanding that I still am a fiery personality. I still have that, there's some things I see and I'm like, are you serious? Like, I still have that response inside. But then I'm like, okay, so I now thank you, awareness. I can direct this to it, or I can just be present with it because sometimes you don't need to direct anything. You're just like, okay, that made me mad. Inhale, exhale, right? And the tools uh, to facilitate that, shift of perspective have not only given me help, but it's allowed me, because, you know, I'm, I think I've shared this with you before, but for the benefit of other people, I didn't plan on teaching anything, <laughs> right? Like I was just a practitioner, but then the universe was just like, you need to talk, brother. <laughs> you need to talk and share what you've been through to other people. Mm-hmm. And so as I've shifted my relationship with these and I found my voice, I've been able to talk about this very candidly from an open heart and impact other people um, because you hurt people, hurt people, but people on the path to healing can offer opportunities for people to have a different shift in perspective. And so that's the best gift that I've been given that I now try and share with other people. Mm-hmm. You know, I've seen some interesting studies linking poverty to lower emotional regulation in children, which speaks to less obvious ways that underserved communities are affected, but also how Mental health can be a product of the larger systems we exist within. Do you think it's a different mental health and wellness journey for marginalized people, for BIPOC, LGBTQI, unhoused folks, or for those with disabilities? Like, what can we learn from underserved communities if we're not a part of it and the ways that they have found to care for themselves while facing oppression or injustice? I gave an interview recently where I joked with the, the person I was like, if a middle-aged black dude is telling you he found a path to peace, you should listen to him. Uh-huh. <laughs> right. You may not agree with what the brother's saying, but listen to him, yeah. like, you know, like, or, or them, listen to that person and hear their story. Because culturally, I never thought that seeing or seeking mental health help was an option. 
right? It just was never presented as such. Um, A, we didn't see professionals who looked like us. Or when I was younger, I um, visited one psychologist at, at my school. And luckily we got along, but like, can you imagine if teenage me opened up to somebody and then they didn't respond or mm-hmm. didn't really help me and I had to like eat that again and then let that fester for years, right? So um, it's, it's marginalized folks, we're not included into the thinking and or if people show concern, they're like, oh, they're tough, they can get over it. They've been through such and such and mm-hmm. such and such. Ah, sure. but. To be expected to always be strong is toxic and not helpful. And mm-hmm. to, and for a culture to not bear witness to the way that their ways impact people who aren't like them. I sprained my ankle pretty amazingly about a year and a half ago and had to use crutches and a cane for about a month and a month and a half. And I didn't realize until I couldn't walk mm-hmm how we don't care about people with disabilities. That's correct. <laughs> right? I was just like, we don't care at all. And so think about the toll that you societally feel when nothing is made with your interests in mind. Yeah. Right? So one of the blessings I had over the pandemic is that I taught a healing sangha for BIPOC disability activists and just allowed the space to be what they needed it to be and they just thanked me because they could be open and seen and held and led in meditation that was sensitive to their needs, right? So someone who was like, if I'm using words, like the translator doesn't get them, willing to work with them so it was as accessible as possible. Mm-hmm. But they were so shocked by that. And I was like, that's my job as facilitator and wisdom steward is to serve you, not be like, hey, this is how I do it. Hopefully you'll figure it out. Like that's not. But what I think we can learn from underserved communities is um, that conventional wisdom isn't always right, one. Mm -hmm. And two is that are systems designed to help everybody or are they designed to keep others out? Mm Mm-hmm. And just that awareness of how the system is designed gives us ways to face oppression or injustice. And usually that comes from those who, like myself, have had to maneuver outside the system to make it work in our interest. Well, back to activists for a moment. (laughs) You know, something I've also found, so obviously, you know, I'm a meditation teacher primarily, and Mm -hmm. my work would be to help a person find inner strength or find a different kind of balance or mm-hmm. loving kindness for themselves, even in the face of difficulty or, you know, some times even really terrible experience. And sometimes I get challenged because that's not working with system change mm-hmm. necessarily. And one of my responses is, well, for the people who are directly and immediately working with systems change, although I challenge that a little bit about myself as well, but anyway, for the people who are working directly, you know, why not come from a place of greater strength, you know? Right. It's like so many stories are told about who people are. Mm -hmm. And so many of them are completely untrue. (laughs) And Mm -hmm. why buy into them more and more? And why be subject to that? And why not have your own source of of connection and, and caring? So... I'm sure you get challenged. And the one thing I would say um, to 
politely just disagree with you is that like if you as teacher and you know this because we've talked a little bit about this helping one person is is the key yeah right? no and, i agree yeah, I agree. yeah, yeah. <laughs> but so for people who would say that about you or i i'm just like look you don't know who that one person is and one, if you're working in the system, you need to be well resourced to withstand like the inertia that you're going up against. One, two, is that systems are made up of people, right? So I know this one I worked on Capitol Hill and with Capitol Hill um, during my, my, my more engaged activism days is that the impact I would have on people influence the system, right? So if my peaceful presence allowed people to be more at peace, one would tend to believe that led to better outcomes and policy. Or I remember during the pandemic, I would teach these online uh, yoga or meditation classes and chiefs of staff would be in there, right? Or like legislative directors, or, you know, at one point, Christine Pelosi, Nancy Pelosi's daughter came to some of my classes and they would be like, how do you know you're having an impact? I was like, because of who's showing up. Mm -hmm. And so like, if we can get... And I've been tilling this soil for a while and it's now bearing fruit as a blessing. I remember the first time I talked about meditation in political campaigns, they were just like, this is a waste of time. And I was like, no, actually it's not. And if you don't allow me time to have my meditation practice, I won't be on your campaign. Mm -hmm. I said that with the Bernie Sanders folks in 2016. I was just like, I'm a yogic and meditative practitioner. And so that means that like this is the lens through which I view the world and like the lens through which I resource to engage with the world. And if you don't give me the time to do what I need to do for myself, I'm not going to do it. And I, rem I remember once I said that I was like, you've really changed, right? Like you've changed from the self-destructive. Mm -hmm. I'm going to work 18 hours a day. You've changed from that guy to standing your ground and service to your inner peace and using that inner peace as a resource to influence the system. Mm -hmm. So um, I know that I know it to be true, but now like more organizations are talking about in the political ecosystems are talking about, we need to take better care of our mental well-being. And I'm like, I wish this could have happened six years ago, but we're here now, <laughs> right? And now because we're here, let's do it. Let's do it now. So I know that it may take a long time, but the consistency with which I've modeled my practice has allowed for system change and culture shift when the time comes. We don't always have the benefit of being at the right time, but we can still plant the seeds. That's great. I want to talk a bit about shame, which is mm -hmm. like the opposite of what you're <laughs> describing, you know, because, right. you know, there's such a prevalent idea for some that mental illness is a sign of our failings. And so if we have a challenge, if we feel depressed, if we're anxious, if we feel we can't cope in some way, we can judge ourselves pretty harshly and mm -hmm. piling on a terrible self-image to what's already a very painful experience. And mm -hmm. in Buddhist teaching, this is sometimes referred to as the second arrow. Mm -hmm. I guess there's some story about somebody who was shot by an arrow and used another arrow to kind of dig it out, but <laughs> really injured himself with that second arrow. You know, Right, right. So not only say are you feeling depressed but you're also full of shame and right condemning yourself on top of the depression which some people actually are that way with physical illness as well right you know i think we were most recently together for the well-being project you know and i said that you know i grew up in a household for example where one never said the word cancer in a loud voice or a normal voice mm, yeah yeah. yeah you know which was bizarre when i was <laughs> you know teaching years and years later on an oncology ward and I found myself whispering mm -hmm. 
you know the word. So there's something about being so present that we don't add that judgment on top of what's already painful. And maybe part of it is, I'm curious what you think, is mm -hmm. it's changing the wording, so not calling that anxiety or, or that profound sadness bad or wrong, but recognizing, oh, this is really painful. Right. I mean, one of the hardest things for folks, myself included, um, to disassociate from shame is that, you know, sometimes what's happening in the world isn't personal. Yeah. Right. So it, it just is. Right. So um, what I've been able to do with my sadness or grief, I remember um, most recently um, someone asked me it was about a year and a half ago, someone was like, Reggie, you're still uh, grieving your cousin. I lost my, his equivalent of my brother in 2021 because of a pulmonary embolism. And it was four months after that. And someone's like, you're still talking about this? And I was just like, uh, yeah, mm -hmm. he's still dead. And, and I'm going to talk about him for the rest of my life because he's my brother. Are you kidding me? And right, so that snark basically bit the shame they were trying to put on me. Mm-hmm. Right. Like, aren't you over it? No, yeah. I'm not. And so that stigma. And that's why, you know, you know, I've talked about this, too. That's why I'm kind of over the top with some of my teaching is because someone's got to look the stigma in the face and being like enough of you. Yeah. Like it's like confronting a bully. So my approach, which isn't for everybody. So I'll talk about other approaches in a second is to look these unfortunate societal norms in the face and be like, let's have an honest conversation if you even have usefulness anymore, mm -hmm. right? So that's my approach. And from an individual approach, it's okay to have a bad day. Yeah. You know, a bad day does not make a bad life, right? I've been dismayed in a way that, that also inspired as a teacher and how many people have forgotten the necessity of sorrow. Mm-hmm. So normalizing things that are bad, quote unquote, as this part of the larger human experience. So we can know that it not only has utility, but I know from my lived experience that some of the things when I was going through it were the most seemingly hard were my best teachers. Mm -hmm. And so normalizing the goal of teachers, I think, should be to normalize that which is given stigma so that we can have a greater understanding and appreciation for our mutual humanity, the, the joys and the sorrows, the slings and the arrows, right? Like, like we need the whole space for both so that we as a collective can normalize the ups and downs of the human experience, as opposed to creating this everything is awesome motif, which is ultimately like the biggest harm psychologically and spiritually in our society. I want to actually bring up more about joy in a minute. But first, I have to tell you the story about yeah. which you just reminded me of, of this time that somebody came to see me maybe six months or so after this terrible tragedy in her life, a really mm -hmm. grievous loss. And her friends were basically saying to her, like, time to get over it. You oh, know? yikes. <laughs> and uh, believe me, this was not a six-month thing. <laughs> you know, this was really bad. Right. And uh, And what she said to me was, so astonishing. She said, my friends all have golden lives. Nothing ever goes wrong. So now I am the symbol of life gone awry and it makes them very uncomfortable. So of course I don't believe for a moment that 
her friends have all golden lives. Nothing ever goes wrong, but right. a lot can happen behind closed doors. It's not Absolutely. disclosed, but I had this experience, you know, you just hear these words come out of your mouth. So what came out of my mouth was, I think you need new friends. <laughs> and then I said, you should meet my friends. They're all a wreck. <laughs> you know, like someone's always going through something, you know, but. So I think I have you beat in terms of Yes. Yeah. Yes. That's great. So let's talk about joy for a moment. Okay. Uh, since you brought it up. Yeah. So one of the things that I've been blessed with is um and it's been part of my healing, I would say, is the the concept of finding joy even when things go wrong. You know, it's been a pillar for my mental health journey to adopt a both and. So like I remember for 2010 and 2011, I had like a concussive series of dramatic events. So I had an apartment fire that was totally my fault. And then two weeks after that, my grandfather passed away. As I was defending my thesis, it broke up with a major, like, like all these things. It was a very Jobian experience. And in the midst of that, I learned if there's one thing going right, <laughs> let me find it mm-hmm. and then give it a bear hug and be like, I can't let you out of my, you know. And so that created conditions for even in my most recent experiences with grief, while I would be cripplingly sad, I would still be able to like laugh if someone said something funny or just hold space for the possibility of laughter even if that wasn't there, right? And so like part of my mental health journey has been to, even in the midst of tremendous adversity, find something that makes me joyful. So one thing that I always delight in is my personal success in light of what my family's been through. So as a, as a descendant of enslaved humans, mm-hmm. so I don't say as a descendant of slaves, a descendant of enslaved humans, I have... You know, it used to be illegal for um, black folks to read. Mm-hmm. I went to Yale, right? Uh, it used to be illegal for black folks to vote. Like I was able to influence the highest levels of of, of power. Mm-hmm. So, like, and this is what I would say in some of the deeper societal organizing work I would do. I was like, are they doing enough for voting rights? No. And at the same time, I'm a descendant of people who couldn't vote. And here I am in my bow ties talking to Nancy Pelosi and her daughter. Mm -hmm. So just like holding space for that one joyful thing in the midst of a, um, this was part of my organizing strategy also from 2017 to 2021, because the Trump year was hard for a lot of people. And I was just like, we're on the right side of history. You know, we're the ones who get to carry this mantle. And while that may seem hollow, I find tremendous joy in following the legacy of John Lewis and Martin Luther King, you know what I mean? And so like Mm -hmm. talking in terms of acknowledging what's going on and find something joyful about it, like keeping a song in your heart when the world seems to want to take the music away has been a really profound, and it was hard at first, I'll admit that, but now, now it has become almost secondarily easy and it's part of the way I teach from, I remember I gave a lecture with Roshi Joan Halifax called Defiant Joy and when things seem at their worst, because that's the legacy for me of the civil rights struggle. That's the legacy of any social change movement is when things seem to be the darkest, what ray of sunlight can you cast out to have people believe in the dawn? Mm -hmm. Well, it's such a a delicate dance, it seems to Mm -hmm. open to the pain. Right. And remember the joy at the same time, really at the same time. Yeah, one begets the other for me in that the pain 
allows me to feel the joy more closely, right? So knowing and being aware that this gift I now hold was born of someone else's suffering or born of a circumstance that's not to my liking, it allows me to cherish it more. Um, but also for me anyway, it allows me to share it. Be like, look at this here, <laughs> take a look at this, as opposed to like wallowing, which seems to be a regular instinct when things aren't, don't go the way we want them to. Mm-hmm. And justifiable, I mean, not, not to say it's not justifiable, but I prefer to stand in joy. Well, I know, you know that you've been going through a period of tremendous loss recently, and mm-hmm. which has led you to speak about grief. And mm-hmm. you know, I'm struck by some of the similarities between our culture's approach to grief and approach to mental health, and seriously, <laughs> how grief is only acceptable in a neat little box. And mm-hmm. for a short period of time, many of the accompanying feelings are often repressed because of that. And I'm curious about both the tools of your meditative life and how that might apply. Like I've certainly for myself, like in the beginning of the pandemic, you know, when I was up here in Barry unexpectedly instead of New York city and Mm -hmm. I stopped traveling altogether, the retreat center closed. And my fervent wish was that we make it to 50, our 50th anniversary, you know, Mm -hmm. and there was no knowing. And, you know, and I wondered how will this be for me? You know, like as as a person, Mm -hmm. am I going to be okay? Mm -hmm. And, so much of what I had been practicing for so many years was important mm-hmm. and useful, um, including just be with what hurts. It's okay. Mm-hmm. It's not your fault. And mm-hmm. also don't extend it into this is the only valid thing I ever feel, you know? Yes. Right. Like look for those add-ons. <laughs> and so I'm just curious about what's happening for you. What's providing support for you. One creating opportunities to share what I'm going through in Sangha or in some other um, aggregation of people has been a blessing, A, because it fuels my desire to normalize the experience. Like when this current episode of grief and loss manifested in February, I was teaching at Kripalu for Kripalu online called Winter Blues Grief Sangha. And so derivative of blues music where people would sing in African descendants of slavery would sing in the most wretched circumstances to find a song when singing seemed ludicrous. So when my uncle passed and as I was teaching, this was like, it was like midway through the, uh, the, the class, I had some notes and I was supposed to teach that night. And I was like, what in the world are I going to say? <laughs> and that's where I started from my teaching. I was like, y'all, so over the weekend, this went from a note taking or note class to I'm just going to speak from the heart because the thing what I was speaking about from a distance has now become visceral again. And everyone thanked me afterwards because I modeled the messiness, but also like the deep compassion for self and others that was required for me to be present in that moment. And so the compassion practices that I had built over the course of years were able to show up. And it surprised me, as I'm sure it's happened for you, that I wasn't only there to be there for me, Mm -hmm. but in being there for me, I was able to be there for the 40 people that were in that online soccer. Mm -hmm. And I was like, whoa. It's like, oh, wow, this this heart resilience thing. Okay, wow, this is kind of mind-blowing. So the 
consistency and I play sound every day. So I'm at, at the feet of my bed when I wake up, my feet hit the ground to give gratitude to be alive. And I start to play just as a chance to be present with sound and like see what silence sounds, sounds like. Maybe there are different birds chirping. So just to bring a level of awareness to my hearing and clarity that way. So those practices over time, basically it, 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 it works with your neuroplasticity. You're literally changing your vibe when you hear pure sound. So when disruptive concussive noise comes, yeah, it'll knock me off a bit, but like I've got sound and meditation and breath work and meta practice in this thing that I do consistently. So when life lives, as, as Lama Ra talks about, that I can just be, I can be with life as it lives, as opposed to viewing this, like you said, as the only true thing right now, like this is true, mm-hmm. but it's all, this is also true that the sun's going to rise tomorrow, you know, like, so holding space for infinite truths at once, as opposed to being subsumed by quote unquote bad news as the only true thing at the moment. It may be the thing that's the most present in my feelings, but it's not the only true thing. And so to know all of that wisdom and, you know, another story that you've heard me say before that I'll share briefly is that I was fired via text message from a job that I moved across the country for. And luckily my yoga and meditative practice were part of that story. But when they fired me via text message, I responded with, like, I put my hand on my heart and bowed and was just like, mm-hmm. thank you for teaching me how to deal with adversity with grace. I didn't know that I had that in me mm-hmm. <laughs> until I was like so disrespected. And so, but I wasn't even attached to that, which surprised me too. I was like, this ego thing went away. This is, this is beautiful. So in the current situation with grief, because of the consistency of my personal and teaching practice, I'm, you know, I now understand the term resourcing more. Mm-hmm. And in fact, uh, meditation, I taught this morning, this one brother was like, man, I can't keep it up. Like, you know, I don't know what it is. I was like, so would you give up on weight training if you went into the gym and did one bicep curl? Be like, y'all, I'm done. Would you would you say that? Mm-hmm. And he was like, no. I was like, similarly, like we're training the mind and like our relationship with the mind to bear witness. Like that's a that's a strength training muscle. It's mental fitness. And he's like, oh, I never thought of it that way. I was like, yeah. Like how ridiculous would it look like for someone to be like, I'm never coming to the gym again because this one bench press didn't make me super strong. Mm-hmm. So creating that shift and being in diligent practice has shown me that I can not only be there for my family, because I've mentioned it in some of the work we've done with the Wellbeing Project, I'm very sad, but also happy to be in community and to share. Because hopefully the way that I'm modeling the ways we can hold both can give someone an opportunity to not be caught up in shame or guilt, or I should be over this now. No, you should, you know, so just give people a different example from cultural norms that aren't rooted in anything. Maybe this has to be our last question, which is very sad. So I'm already thinking that, oh, we should have you back. Uh, since you, uh, <laughs> I know community is so much a part of your being and, yeah. and what you offer people. And so maybe you can say something about that. You're such a community builder. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, you know, and, 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 it's just, and it has been an essential part of my journey in that, y'all, the biggest myth that we have is that we're separate from one another, right? So the pain that we all feel, it may not be the specific flavor, but we're all going through something. And what I try and do as a teacher, but also as a human and an organizer is create conditions for us to come together in this heart space to talk about things as they are, 
and where we go from there. And that has been a the gift that keeps on giving. But if it weren't for us to find a way to be together, why would there be so many of us? <laughs> you know, just let me appeal to a logical mind, right? Like, why are, are many of our senses externally oriented if it weren't to some extent to connect with other people? I mean, I also believe, as you do, Sharon, that sometimes we need to connect inward because that's the true wellspring from which all this wisdom flows. But um, at the same time, once we do that connection, sharing it with other people creates opportunities for things that were once shameful to be seen as normal and then lifting that stigma so people could have more freedom. So I, I do that in my political organizing, so creating conditions that we can talk about things that all of us feel we just don't know how to say. And in my, my spiritual teaching, in my, my dharmic and meditative and yogic teaching, I just try to create conditions where we all recognize that we're going through this together and I may not be in your part of the uh, ensemble, but we're still singing from the same sheet of music. So let's make music together as opposed to like some person on a kazoo playing by themselves. Let's form an orchestra. Mm -hmm. So, you know, music is really important to me as well. So music is better in harmony with others as opposed to off by yourself. So great. So I know there are a number of very practical questions that have come in and will come in as we continue to explore mental health, you know, like how do I find a community and mm -hmm. uh, is going to be one and how do I find a therapist who's trained in mindfulness or meditation? So maybe what we can do is like try to just talk to a lot of people mm -hmm. and put information in like show notes mm -hmm. so that the resources will build right over time. I'd love that. So, okay. Would you lead us in a practice? I'd love to. And as we transition to practice, deep gratitude to y'all for the chance to share something that's close to my heart, right? So share um, something about the normalization of our lived experience in community, um, because whether we like it or not, all we have is one another. So as we transition to practice, I'd like for, if comfortable, to find a posture that allows the body to feel supported and at ease. For some that may be an upright seat, for some that may be lying down, for some that might be standing. But whatever that looks like for and feels like for you, feel the support of the ground beneath you. And as I've heard recently, rather than feeling the pull of gravity as something that is a burden, feel it as an embrace. So rather than being forced to stay, feel gravity as an embrace of the earth, bringing you into herself, being like, I got you. And then notice the breath in the body without adjustment. Just see if there is a temperature or a texture or a location. And whatever that means for you, adjust the breath so there's more ease and space. Could be a longer inhale, could be a longer exhale, could be equanimity, same number. But feeling not just your experience with this, but feeling into someone else who's listening, someone else who could use 
a little tender affection and attention. Because tending to our garden is not just enough. If we have enough resourcing, we should share that with one another so that we can get through this thing called life with a little bit more peace and ease. So feeling into the sense of grounding, feeling into the breath in the body, just allow the breath to be easeful. Allow that sense, felt sense of feet on ground or tail in seat and gravity to be the embrace that just allows you to soften a little bit more. And then feeling into how's our mind today? And just recognizing the quality of thought as it is without shame or judgment. And if you feel great, hooray. If you feel not so great, hooray as well. And offering compassion, as we mentioned during the podcast, it's okay to be unwell. There's a lot going on. And none of us are alone in this feeling. So as we bear witness to the quality of thought, in addition to the felt sense of the ground and the breath in the body, see if you can hear in your environment different tones. Maybe it's the sound of the breath. Maybe it's something out the window. Maybe it's an air conditioning unit turning on, kids playing outside. And notice how as we expand our awareness to what we hear outside of ourselves, see if you can keep that felt sense in the body. So hearing what's out, but also feeling within. And one of the things that is a key part of my practice is sound. So even if we do all the breathing and all the grounding, it may not be enough to quiet the mind or allow the mind to rest a bit. So I will play some sound in a moment that is meant to clear the mind, not stop thoughts because that's not possible but to clear the mind and allow the mind to relax, allow the mind to soften and allow the mind to have a different relationship with the rest of the senses. So more in line as opposed to more forward. So playing this bowl 11 times, allow what you hear to land in the mind, soften the body, soften and deepen the breath.
And as the sound fades away from this 350-year-old wisdom steward, notice how the impact of the sound has been on the mind, the breath, the body. And for the next minute or so, allowing the cumulative impact of conversation, breathing, awareness, sound, silence, to bring you into a truer understanding of how you truly feel in this moment so that you can know how better to resource in this moment and going forward. Presencing yourself again with the body. One closing breath, deep, full, in through the nose. Exhale in a way that gives you peace and grace. And as you're ready, maybe open and close the hands, lower the head or open the eyes. Thus ending our meditation. Hopeful that this has been of service to you. With gratitude I offer, may the merits be to ease suffering of our all in the world. Thank you. Well, thank you so very much. It's it's always wonderful to be with you, Reggie, and, and I hope we get to do it many more times. My honor, my pleasure, and I look forward to being in touch with you soon. Hey folks, thanks so much for listening. If you'd like to learn more about Reggie's work and his many different offerings, you can visit his website at activepeaceyoga.com. That's activepeaceyoga.com. This has been the Mental Health Series, and if you'd like to check out some resources from today's episode, you can visit our show notes where we are compiling resources for the series as we move along through it. And again, if you'd like to send in questions, different topic suggestions, or specific questions you have about mental health in the realm of Buddhism or spiritual practice, send us an email, admin at SharonSalzberg.com, A-D-M-I-N at SharonSalzberg.com. This has been the Meta Hour podcast from the Be Here Now Network. May you be safe, may you be happy, may you be healthy, and may you live with ease. <laughs>